It has long been said that ideas are everything, especially in the startup world. But what if having a laser focus on your idea can actually hold your business back? In the Ideas Last podcast, Danielle Gillespie interviews startup founders whose success came from obsessively focusing on execution instead of ideation. Each episode dissects what it actually takes to build a long-lasting, profitable startup rather than simply launching one by putting your idea last. Welcome to Ideas Last, the podcast about turning initial sparks into big results. I'm your host, Danielle Gillespie, and I'm excited to learn how top entrepreneurs turn their sparks into thriving companies. Today, we're speaking with David Siegel. David is the CEO of Meetup, a company I'm sure many of you are familiar with and whose platform you've probably even used at one time or another. This will be an exciting podcast, and I'm really looking forward to it. So let's dive right in. David, welcome, and thank you so much for being with me today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. So if you could just tell me in your words, just give us like a high-level explanation of what Meetup is today and, you know, what, what, what your thoughts are about it. Yeah, I love Meetup. I love it so much. <laughs> I'm the CEO of Meetup. That's how much I love it. <laughs> so Meetup is the world's largest platform for organizing um, events and community. So what I mean by that is we have 55 million people in 190 countries around the world that go to, get ready for this, 15,000 events every single day. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So we have about 300,000 groups in our platform and those groups organize events. Those events could be a hiking event or playing Settlers Catan event or Dungeons and Dragons event or a support group for parents of ADHD kids. The, the, it's, the spectrum of, of events goes from very broad to like incredibly niche, like lesbian photographers, black lesbian photographers in DC want to meet up together. So that's what we do. And, and the reason why we do it is because there's a deep loneliness epidemic out there. 46% of people regularly feel lonely. And among Gen Zers, it's actually up to 62% of people regularly feel lonely. And, the, and relationships is the magic that makes life worth living. And the ability to meet people who are different from you, but share common passions as you, is something that makes life worth, li- worth living. So I love my job and I'm very lucky to have it. <laughs> That's awesome. I think there is a lot of loneliness and it's, it's difficult to connect. I mean, it's difficult to connect online, but I think it's, it's even difficult to connect in person. It's hard to find the other people that are like you. So not to get too far into the weeds of meetup, but how, let's say, you know, you are that African-American lesbian photographer in DC how would that person go onto your platform and and find other people like her? Great. So there's two ways, obviously, is our platform. There's the website and there's our apps. I'm a big fan of our apps. I just think that it's just more more utility. More people are increasingly using our apps than than using using desktop. And they'll go do a search or they'll browse. They could search and they could type in photographer meetup group or Black lesbian photographer meetup group, whatever they wanted, and they search in their area, and they'll find all the meetup groups that happen to have have events in their area. They could search on a group level to find groups that are interesting, or they could say, "Forget the group. I just want to find cool and interesting events in my area." And they could type and search, or they could like. For an example, I was in Venice um, 
a couple months ago. And I was like, I want to just meet some people that are, live in Venice and not just a bunch of tourists. So I changed my location from White Plains, New York, where I live to Venice. And I said, what cool stuff is happening in Venice right now? And I saw, oh, there's a run. And the run is starting in an hour from now. So I went to my wife and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go running with some Venetians right now. And she's like, great, you're out of my hair. Awesome. So I went out and I did like a five mile run through Venice. And those are the kind of serendipitous stuff that just happen that are just authentic and meeting like real people. So that's how, you know, a lot of people use our platform. Okay. That's, that's actually pretty cool. So you can be as broad or as narrow as you want when you're looking for something kind of cool to do. Yep. And you could search by geography. You could search by, by outdoor events versus indoor events. You could search by just a ton of different, different, whatever your priorities are, you could search, you know, on those dimensions. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you're very happy with your job, but what was, (laughs) what was the thing about meetup that attracted you to, you know, considering and applying for the position? Sure. You don't really apply for a CEO job. Most CEOs. Well, no, like I know. But, you know. <laughs> but, but here's what I would say. What, what attracted me to the job was actually two things. One was we used to be owned by WeWork, actually. Oh. We, were, we were divested by WeWork about a year and a half ago in March of 2020. So right when the pandemic started. But at the time, like everyone else in the world, when we saw a $47 billion valuation and we heard the amazing stories of Adam Newman and we were kind of taking over the world, I was like, wow, this is a fascinating company. And the fact that they acquired Meetup because they wanted to build community into their buildings and Meetup was the best community platform for their buildings made a ton of sense to me. And I said, I want to be part of that. We work rocket ship. I was obviously wrong. The rocket ship ended up going in a different direction. Um, (laughs) And also I had been going to meetup events for like a decade and, you know, I'm a meetup organizer right now. And I had learned so much by going to tech meetup events. Tech is our actually biggest category. And I, my background is even in at one point in time, I worked in human resources and kind of the people side of things is where I get most passionate about why I enjoy work and and meetup is all about helping people to meet other people we use technology to get people off of technology and actually build real human connections for people so it's just it really resonated for me from a mission standpoint and then 27 interviews later after meeting with you know <laughs> lots of different people like i was almost going through the cia I, I i ended up getting the job and i was the first ceo of the company that took over for the founder scott heiferman who had been the founder for the ceo and leader of the company for 16 years prior. So, oh, okay, wow. How'd that transition go? Scott is amazing. Scott really helped to set me up for success. Scott is your classic entrepreneur who is and will always be incredibly mission driven about helping to drive meetups' success and growth. He was, you know, a little less focused on the operation side which is typical of many entrepreneurs. And he really deeply believed in the mission and, and we work wanted to have like much, much more aggressive accelerated growth. And, and they came to the decision to find a new CEO. So he was, he was really helpful. He was the chairman actually for a period of time. And I actually just got an email from him yesterday because we, we stay in nice contact and I, and I use his counsel for, for different things I'm thinking about. Awesome. So 
So you said you took over last year, last March? I took over two and a half years ago. So two and a half years actually, ago. I took over in, in, I sold the company in March. We sold the company in March of 2020. I joined in October, sorry, almost three years ago. So we can start that over. I joined, it's been almost three years since I became okay. CEO. Okay, cool. So how has the product evolved since you've joined as CEO? So that's a really great question. Meetup's product has always been very complex. And the reason for it is there's many different dimensions at which the company works. Meaning we have a thousand to 2000 different categories of types of meetup events that we have. We have to, we're a dual-sided marketplace, which means we have to make our organizers happy, our 300,000 organizers and our 50 million plus members happy. We have tech debt that has accumulated over a period of like 16 to 18 years and millions of lines of code, which made it very difficult to iterate on the product because every time we would make a change, rather than making a change in one place, we'd have to make changes in like 50 different locations just because of the nature, a company that's been around for close to 20 years. Our 20 year anniversary is coming up in 2022. So my priority was how do we move to a new platform, simplify the experiences, not have tremendous numbers of education, edge cases. Like we had like 20 different ways that people could upload a photo. <laughs> it's just like crazy different things. So that was my primary thing to set up the infrastructure so that we'd be able to iterate quickly. And we've been spending a fair amount of time in the beginning, certainly on that. In terms of how we've evolved the product during COVID and which has been a very significant impact to our business. What does Meetup do when you can't meet up in person? We have had over 3 million Meetup events online since the pandemic started from having zero online events in our first 16 years of our history. Wow. So our entire focus had to shift. So we really updated a lot of the tech to enable online events. Normally you don't think about things like time zones because if you're in Germany and you have an event in Germany, you don't need to be really giving lots of visibility around what the time zone is. But now we had to make lots of change around time zones. And that's just one example among many different examples to enable online events to integrate it with Zoom, et cetera. So there's been quite a significant number of changes in terms of our infrastructure, in terms of enabling online events as well. Wow. Uh, so that's a lot to manage. <laughs> How, so my experience is that it's not always easy to get everyone on board with going and fixing the infrastructure because everyone has ideas and like, oh, we want to do something new. We want to want to add a new feature. Our customers are going to leave us if we don't keep adding new features. How do you, how do you balance that and, and make everyone uh, get on board with infrastructure? <laughs> Yeah, infrastructure is not the most exciting rallying cry, but it can be to many people. So for example, here's here's what I would say. To WeWork, I failed miserably in prioritizing building infrastructure because WeWork was so focused on growth at any cost and, and product-facing and customer-facing initiatives that actually what we did was we added to our tech debt and we made the situation from bad to even worse in the first year of me being CEO, because I was not able to kind of convince the WeWork team that we needed to pull back and really reset what we were doing and actually have 
almost no improvements in our product experience because of the fact that, that WeWork's ideology was so focused on growth. When we got acquired by the primary investors, a guy named Kevin Ryan, who's someone that I worked for 20 years prior. He was the CEO of DoubleClick and the founder of Business Insider and Gilt and Zola and MongoDB. So I brought him to acquire a meetup out of WeWork. And the first thing he said is, what do you need most? And I said, we need a year to just get our act in order. And the good news is that it actually was a real rallying cry for our engineers because for our engineers, it was such a tough infrastructure to work within that it, we had retention issues and it was difficult to motivate people when you have to, when it's so difficult to be able to make the most basic types of changes. So we had very easy time internally. The more difficult time was actually originally convincing our board of, of the decision to invest more in terms of infrastructure, but that became very easy with a new owner. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I just think that it's, it's so difficult to go back and fix all that, but I, I, without actually being the engineer that is managing that can of worms, it's difficult. It's it's really hard to convey how what a mess it is to to work with something. How much more time it takes, not just to implement something new or change something, but then to test it all out. Because now you've changed. You've you're in sixteen different places, not just one place. And the whole thing, as as someone who started as an engineer. I, do, I, I wholeheartedly support infrastructure, maybe almost too much. So yeah, we had we had so many bugs and challenges in the system because it was just so spaghetti and so messy that we knew we were doing right by our, our members and our organizers ultimately by making this change. And it's worked out well so far. Our yeah. QA process is dramatically better. Our ability to ship product is significantly faster. I feel great about kind of the place that we're in right now. Yeah. And frankly, what COVID does I mean, obviously it's beyond a tragedy, but for tech companies, it gives you the ability to kind of take a step back and say, okay, what are the things that we never had the ability to focus on, but now we can actually spend our time focusing on this because it's just the right thing to do and a better medium to long-term decision. And, and, and because we knew that we were not going to be driving significant growth or any growth, frankly, during COVID. And our best case was just to kind of stay flat, shall we say, that that it would be a great time to invest in the business. And that's what we've done. Yeah. I, it's such an important message. I, I think it's a really good lesson for, especially, you know, younger entrepreneurs who have maybe launched, but they're starting to hit that growth stage and understand the importance of managing, you know, a good, clean backend, as well as, balancing that against what the customers want and, and often not a really, really big budget. So it's, it's a hard thing to make all three of those sort of gel and understand the importance of each side of the triangle. <laughs> yeah. Entrepreneurs are, are not great at killing code, at reinvesting in, in, in technical infrastructure. Um, there's just too much pressure by VCs to have as dramatic growth and impact as possible. And it's not necessarily the entrepreneur's fault, frankly. It's, as I said, it's usually the board and the, and the VCs that, that present the biggest challenge, or at least their perception of what VCs will say that presents the biggest challenge because it's just the growth expectations. So is there anything, I mean, obviously besides your amazing energy, anything from your past lives that, that make you feel like you've been particularly successful in this role or, you know, something in your past that you think, well, there's an experience that I really couldn't have lived without good or bad. 
I think when you've been working for 25 years, the great news is that you've been able to have made many mistakes and had many failures. <laughs> so I think failures and mistakes is one of the most important things to be able to grow as a leader. And, and I think if you're able to really internalize what the basis for those mistakes were, and oftentimes for me, it was putting what I wanted and what was potentially best for me ahead of, ahead of what was best for the company, meaning I would, I would push a company to a business that I was in to acquire another company because it would make my business bigger when it may not have necessarily been in the best interest of the company to do so. Or I pushed a business to grow much more aggressively than it should have before we really had product market fit um, and to scale way too fast. So when you make a lot of those mistakes or I hire people really too quickly, again, because of uh, a more kind of aggressive growth kind of perspective that I have, you learn a lot and, and you learn that you need it. Sometimes going fast makes you go slow and going slow, actually you can end up going much faster and maybe it comes with older age and gray hair <laughs> Not that too much of that yet, but I, I think it, I think it's helped me me quite a bit. The other thing I would say is that when I was a CEO of Investopedia, which was my job prior to to this job, the thing I love most about the job was our mission to help to educate the world about finance because I knew so many people who had made so many personal financial mistakes because they just didn't understand how credit card debt works or how compound how important compounded interest was. And I really looked internally, I said, I need a job where mission is central to what the company does. And that's why when I was approached uh, about becoming the CEO of Meetup, it was so appealing to me because of the mission orientation of the business. So I wouldn't have taken a, a business that didn't have a deep mission orientation or was, that, or, or was a B2B type company. I, I knew how important that was. And, 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 and I think that that's helped me to be kind of a more successful leader during challenging times. Yeah. Those are all really great lessons, particularly about the part where it's okay to make a mistake and mistakes help you in the end. And I, I think, you know, most of the young CEOs slash entrepreneurs that I meet just feel like they have to have the perfect answer to every single question. And, you know, oftentimes just having somebody say, mistakes happen. You just got to move on. You know, you're not the only one that's been had by a bad contractor. You know, you're not the only one who made a bad choice or bad hire. And I think that it's important to understand that everybody has made those mistakes and that they're not, they're not life shattering and nobody actually sets out to make a mistake. It just, yeah. no, I'm, I'm so obsessed with transparency around mistakes that we have a standard agenda item for every single exec team meeting where every single executive every single week has to get in front of all the other executives and talk about a mistake that they made in the prior week. <laughs> personal, professional, or either one? Usually professional. It's almost <laughs> always professional, but it's great because what happens is they say, I should have done this step better. I'm sorry for not informing these people, or I held it back on this too long. And then everyone just like, Thank you for sharing that. Or, oh, could you get more help here? It creates more bonding. Vulnerability creates a greater sense of team and more bonding. And it's the first time I've ever done that before. And it's been such a positive process for allowing people to feel comfortable around each other, build relationships with each other, and, and ideate on how to address kind of what challenges are. It's been, it's, been, it's been really positive. So to all the people out there, 
stand out and 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 acknowledge your your challenges and mistakes and i think good things will happen from that yeah i i wholeheartedly agree and it's it's funny because a lot of people you know i've i'm also fairly transparent about some of the things i've mis- you know not perhaps done the best way possible <laughs> and people are always so surprised that you know i'm willing to share that part of you know the the thing i botched and it's not a big deal. Everybody's botched something. It's just whether or not you share it and, you know, assess it and make it in my case, I'd make a joke about it. And then you move on. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's just life. (laughs) It's it's, it's hard for a lot of people. Imposter syndrome is like a real thing. There's tremendous numbers of people who feel like they don't deserve to be in the positions that they're in today. And if, if one feels that or has that, which is a real thing, and I'm very empathetic to people who do feel that because it's so common. It's very hard to, at the same time, say, I fell in this, I made this mistake. There's a, a certain level of, of, of confidence and self-esteem that's really required to be able to get to um, the point where you feel very comfortable being as vulnerable as you can. And for a lot of people, it's a, it's a journey to get there. And I'm sympathetic to people that, that have challenges doing so. Yeah, me too. I think that's awesome. So to change gears a little bit, so many of the companies that you've, that you've either started up or, you know, have taken over CEOs, et cetera, what, at what point do you um, think they typically decide that they needed an executive like you at the helm? Yeah. What I found is that there's usually two precipitators towards transitioning from an entrepreneur to a professional experience kind of CEO. The two precipitators are number one, things are kind of in chaos and there's a lack of process. And again, not to be overly stereotypical, but entrepreneurs oftentimes tend to be great at vision and, 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 and not as great when it comes to building process and infrastructure, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that process and infrastructure could disenable growth because growth leads to even more chaos so, so frequently someone is brought in, I am brought in if there's a need for, for that. The second reason that an entrepreneur is oftentimes transitioned out in favor of a more executive professional is because the, the company can't get past a certain revenue threshold. It's been at $5 million for the last three years or two years or, or, or even year. It's been at $15 million for a same, same period of time. And there's a acknowledgement by the board and oftentimes by the entrepreneur as well, if not consciously, then oftentimes very much subconsciously that someone else needs to kind of come in with a different growth mindset potentially to bring in different ways in which he or she has grown an organization in the past. So for example, at Investopedia, it was really a definitions website of financial terms and it was fully ad supported and and that was it i previously had experience in building e-commerce businesses and building subscription businesses and building lead gen businesses so we added on all these additional revenue streams and and the company over tripled in revenue after really being flat for 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 3 years prior to my joining and and kind of that's an example where there was process but there was a lack of kind of a growth mindset within the organization and become a little bit too sleepy. We work, however, not meetups per se, but we work is a case where 
Adam was big time growth mindset, but there was no process. And they needed professional CEOs to come in, take over for Adam Newman to have more process orientation, financial discipline as part of the business. So those are the two primary reasons I found. Okay. So let's say, you know, you're talking to a young company and they've sort of reached this chaotic state, but they don't necessarily, they're not yet supported by VC or they choose to not be supported by VC and they can't really afford a qualified executive. What, what would you suggest that they do in that situation? Okay. A couple of things. Number one is more companies die of indigestion than of starvation. And it's really important for entrepreneurs to understand that they die because there's too many different things that they're trying to do at the same time. And if they're indigesting all, the, all this food, then there's a lack of ideas. People just keep prioritizing more and more things. They don't understand that deprioritization is actually more important than prioritization. What am I going to deprioritize? If I'm doing this, what are the things that I'm going to stop doing? Add one thing, take two things away. So it's number one is I would say for that entrepreneur is find a mentor or find a coach that has gone through some of the things that you've gone through, that has gone through some of the challenges you've gone through and find a way to sit with that person once a week, once a month, be vulnerable with that person. They should be your professional therapist in many ways and help guide you to learn how to prioritize the, the need for, for process, even if it means slowing down in order to ultimately speed up later on. That's one. And then two is that entrepreneurs need to have enough of a backbone to go to their boards and say, hey, if we keep doing things the way we've been doing them, it's not going to be sustainable. We need to take a bit of a step back and get the board to align around that in order to be able to be in a position to be able to grow effectively and efficiently in the future. And a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of, they're afraid. They're afraid to acknowledge that there needs to be a pullback or a step back at times, but ultimately that's what every organization needs and multiple times in, in the, in their, in their journey. And if you don't have that, you're, you're, you're going to end up taking a step back. It's just going to be a question of how messy that ultimately is and better do it when it's not messy. So talk to the board, get a line from the board, get a line from the executive team and find mentors and find coaches to help you. Right. That's, the mentors and coaches to me, I think is a big deal. I, I accidentally found a great coach uh, when I was founding Cork Guru. And to this day, it was probably one of the best choices I ever made because it's so difficult to, I mean, you understand you need to prioritize and deprioritize, but as the leader, people just think you have the answers. And if you have no one to talk to about how to make that happen, then it you could just spin endlessly, you know, trying to figure out what to do and then second guessing yourself and doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing or not, not knowing why something worked or something didn't work. So I think that's all helpful. Yeah. There's a handful, maybe even five to 10 different CEOs and entrepreneurs who I, who I mentor and coach right now, it doesn't take that much time and it's incredibly meaningful for me and I, it's a way of giving back because I've been fortunate enough in my career to have people who gave their time and have helped to mentor and coach me. And I think that was one of the reasons why I've been able to, you know, move up in, in, in from, a, from a career standpoint. So yeah. I just want to give back, frankly, because so much of my success is because of mentorship and coaching. 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a hundred percent how I feel too, but yeah, no, I, I love that. That's, that's great. Uh, great perspective and advice to, to give young entrepreneurs. So back to a little bit back to meetup and some of the other companies that you've worked at, do you have a system in place for people to bring new ideas into the, into the mix of what you might be considering? And then how do you prioritize what is the best thing to be doing next in terms of development once you have the infrastructure under control? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two key components to new idea ideation. The first is building the culture around new ideas and our, and our approach to them. And this, I'll talk about that. The second is having the right process and infrastructure actually to support new ideas. So what do I mean by that? Let's talk about culture first. So if every time that I have a meeting, at the end of the meeting, I say, does anyone else have any ideas of how we could do this better as part of the culture? If every time that we are having an all hands meeting, we say, hey, this is a product launch, but who else has better ideas of what other things that we can do to improve our business? If every time that there's a Slack conversation that's happening, and these days there's like thousands of Slack conversations going on, I meet up at every other tech company out there, interjecting and encouraging people to make ideas. And then when there's an idea, going back to the person and say, that was such a great idea, we're gonna do it. And then after you do it, closing the loop and saying, because of you, we ended up increasing our conversion rate by 2% because of that great idea that you had of, of changing the user interface. So if you have a culture around that and you ensure that all of your managers and your leaders are constantly trying to solicit new ideas, but not just solicit them because soliciting is not good enough. You have to close the loop and give them feedback afterwards. That's super important. Second piece is you actually need a mechanism for tracking ideas. So there's a, a great product, I don't know if you know it or not, if your listeners know it or not, but it's called Nolt. I don't, I don't get paid by them at all. So <laughs> N-O-L-T, N-O-L-T. Nolt is actually, it's, it's actually synced with Slack, which makes it great. And, and every week, every single employee gets a Slack message that says, share your new ideas. And it gets categorized into this repository called Nolt. It allows people to go into it, give thumbs up and thumbs down to all the different ideas that are out there. Our product team does, goes back finds out who came up with the idea and follows up with them about, about the potential idea. And we have this repository that's this living document that makes it a very easy interface for us to prioritize ideas that come you know, through this through Note, which is a very inexpensive type of type tech to, to use. So you can't just have like a culture, you actually have, have to have like a really good system. It can't just be like an Excel spreadsheet and you can't just have a system without the culture, you need both. Yeah. For sure. And that note, I've never heard of that. That that sounds like a, a good tool. And is it everybody in your company or is it just the engineers or is it have? Uh, it needs to be everyone. It needs yeah. to be every single person. It needs to be the intern who's, who's a college student, feels comfortable giving a suggestion. And we need to create, you need to create an environment around that. I used to have a big sign at Investopedia that said, see something, say something, just giant letters. And the idea was, anyone who sees something, anyone who has an idea at all, because so many of our interns or people right out of college are meetup members or meetup organizers. They know a lot more because they're actually using our product a ton. So of course we want those ideas. And the best ideas also come from our, our customers. Like 
we, we integrate Zendesk, which is our customer service support tool. And we have a point person within the customer service tool team that, that then surfaces new product ideas that, that need that come out of the feedback from our members and organizers. And when you have a process around that, it, that's the way you want to build product. It's based on the feedback and needs of our members and organizers. So that loop between our customer service team and support team and product development, product management, it's called a product support role, is very, very important. We have a person who's like dedicated responsibility is exactly that. So are they manually reading through all the, the Zendesk transcripts or does the Zendesk sort of uh, lump up common themes or trends? Yeah, so well, it's actually everything is categorized in the system. And then we do manually read it. So, for, so every single feedback that we get on our iOS app or our Android app, we post every single week to the entire organization actually in Slack. And anyone can read that specific feedback because there's nothing that's more helpful than reading direct exact feedback on things. But in addition to that, within our system, everything's also categorized. So we, we could say, oh, look, there were 48 different this past month people that talked about the challenges in not knowing whether someone's vaccinated or non-vaccinated for a meetup event, you know, making that up. But there's only five for this other other issue. Let's focus on the, that 48 and, and not the smaller number. So we have both. Hmm. That's actually pretty cool. That's, yeah. a, that's a great practical example for somebody that you know, I, and again, like back to the early stages of a, a startup company and they wonder how do we decide what to do next? And, you know, one thing I'm always saying is we need to go back to these customers and see how they're using the product and observe them and listen to what they're saying and where are you getting your most questions, take all that information and that'll tell you what to do next. And, you know, it's, it's not, you know, a big when you're just a startup, it's easier to just pick one thing to do. You don't really have to manage that, you know, all these different arms and, and parts of the platform. You're just thinking what, what's the most high value thing I can do next. So. Yeah, I think- and, and, I, and I think that customers I've always found are great at identifying where there's a problem and where there's a challenge where things sh- should be improved upon, figure out what exactly the solution is. That's our job. So we don't want customers to tell us, do this, do that, fix this, do this exact way to fix your fix meetup, because they'll, do, they'll, they'll give a suggestion that may not be as sustainable, that may be only for them specifically. We want to understand what the problems are that they're facing. And then we ideate on ideas. We go back to the customers with here are some ways in which we're thinking of, of addressing it. We have beta groups for customers all the time. And then we will implement something based on what we think are the potential best solutions to the problems that are ultimately surfaced. But don't let, but don't let product development happen by our customers, but let problem identification happen from customers. Exactly. That's perfect. I love that. So, you know, you've, you've been in this, this startup world, the tech world, you mentor entrepreneurs, you teach, what's the one piece of advice or a couple pieces of advice that you give to young innovators that are just starting out? Sure. Prior to them becoming an entrepreneur or they're already an entrepreneur? Well, both, because I, okay. I have two answers for that too. They're both sarcastic. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I guess before they were, let's say they're in college or let's say they're working in a company and they're frustrated and they feel like they have no agency 
and they just want to do things the way they want to do them. And they're thinking of starting a company. Starting a company is extraordinarily hard, much more likely uh, will fail than will succeed. And it's better to find another job in a culture that's more entrepreneurial and potentially find a role that could be you're more of an entrepreneur and you have the resources of a larger company to help you to potentially succeed than to start with the tabula rosa, just a blank slate. And I would say to that person, before you jump from, you know, corporate IBM boring, find another company that can be more entrepreneurial and evaluate whether that could be a potentially better fit than have to go to the extreme of starting something on your own. Now, if something's someone's already an entrepreneur, what I would say is, you know, some of the things that I've said, which is don't, don't work a hundred hours a week, 80 hours a week, or even 60 hours a week, maybe 60, but like not more than 60. <laughs> because you're gonna run out of steam, you're gonna burn out. People can't work for people that are working at that level for a sustained period of time. And make sure you're taking care of yourself, making sure you're taking care of your sanity and that you are not going so fast that you're not gonna be able to be both you know, emotionally healthy and, and able to think as, as clearly as, as, as you would than if you're working kind of a normal hour. So work-life balance is important, even for an entrepreneur is the advice I would give because so many entrepreneurs are so hard charging and so myopic and it, it's kind of, it's dangerous for them and for people around them. That's the advice I would often give. Yeah, that's, that's really important to just understand. I mean, it's a fine line between sort of just being, you know, well, I'll just do this when I want to do it. And why are, why am I not seeing any success? And then going at it overboard. Like, oh, I, I only need three hours of sleep a night. I can, I can do this. I can manage that. Well, that's just not true either. So yeah. <laughs> got to find that balance and you got to recharge the batteries every once in a while. Exactly. It's very, very important. Very yeah. Important. And all so, the things that we said, go slow to go fast, find a mentor, all those things I think are really helpful for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. You and I are on the exact same page on, the, on those topics. So is there something on the horizon you're looking forward to that you're willing to share? And it can be personal or it could have to do with meetup or it could be something you're thinking about. Next great thing. <laughs> I mean, I'd say there's two. There's professional and personal. The professional side and the personal side, frankly, I'm looking for the world to get back to a greater state of normalcy. <laughs> That's what I think we're all looking forward to. And Meetup, it's very hard to, to, we're all about getting together, frankly, in person is much more powerful than online. And when I look back a hundred years ago, when there was this, you know, dual events of the Spanish influenza and World War I, and people were wearing masks a hundred years ago and sheltering in place, there's a reason why the Roaring Twenties happened you know, directly after that time period. And I am convinced that the Roaring Twenties are going to be happening again <laughs> in the entire world. And, you know, as Delta subsides, as vaccinations increase, as mandates likely increase as well, I think there's going to be just a return back to normalcy or at least a, a kind of a way to live effectively with COVID, just like we live, we live with the flu for, for, for centuries that will enable us to kind of live life the way we used to live life again and go back to 
entertaining and, and, and meeting strangers and having amazing experiences and building community. So that's the thing I look forward most on a personal and professional level. And then on, a, on the other side, I'm excited because the, the, the experiences of both my career and also of being part of WeWork and the separation sale out of WeWork and now being independent and the, and the crises that came out of, out of the pandemic have made for such a crazy roller coaster story that, that I have a book that's coming out called Decide and Conquer, and that's going to be coming out in early 2022. So that's also exciting for me to be able to share that because, you know, as a professor at Columbia, I have 70 students and I get to build great relations with them. I get to help to teach and mentor them. But the ability to hopefully teach, you know, tens of thousands of people, albeit not as depth with, with much depth, but still many different people, some principles and frameworks is very exciting to me. So I'm excited. That's awesome. Yeah. So, wow. Best of success with that. This has been just awesome, awesome conversation. I love your energy. I love, you know, where your head is at and, and your willingness to share your successes and observations with us. Thank you so much.